from the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi, this is Tracy Jan calling from The Post. Am I President Trump, how are you? Hi, it's Robin Gibbon at The Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Thursday, January 30th. Today, the White House scrambles to respond to coronavirus. Final questions in the impeachment trial. And Trump donors going from zero to 60. The main reason for this declaration is not because of what is happening in China, but because of what is happening in other countries. On Thursday, the World Health Organization declared the coronavirus a public health emergency. That declaration sets in motion a global plan to slow the spread of the virus. Our greatest concern is the potential for the virus to spread to countries with weaker health systems and which are ill-prepared to deal with it. The number so far, more than 8,000 people have been affected. More than 170 people have died. And those numbers are climbing quickly. I know that looking at the headlines is going to be freaking a lot of people out because the case numbers are very large and people are getting evacuated by their countries and flights are being stopped. But you have to remember, if you live in the United States, in fact, if you live outside China and you have not traveled to the central Chinese city of Wuhan, you are probably going to be okay. My name is Lena Sun. I'm a reporter on the national staff of The Washington Post, and I write about public health. This coronavirus comes from a family of coronaviruses, and they are common in animals and humans. In fact, a common cold is a coronavirus. It's called a coronavirus because it has these little spiky crowns on the virus, ergo the name. Some coronaviruses can jump from animals to humans and cause very severe disease, such as SARS. This one, we don't know as much about it, but it seems to be not as severe as SARS, but it's early days and here's the rub. It's important to remember that even though there are now cases outside of China, including six now in the United States, that most of the people outside of China who have gotten sick with this virus are not that sick. So just to put this in perspective, we are still in the winter, flu and cold season. A lot of the symptoms of coronavirus are very similar to flu and cold. Fever, cough, already this season... Flu has killed at least 54 children, and it is estimated to have killed already more than 8,000 adults. Even though there has not been severe illness in the United States, nor are there a lot of cases here or elsewhere outside of China, public health officials are worried because this is a novel coronavirus. It's a new pathogen, so we don't know a lot about it. And also, it's a virus. When virus gets spread from person to person, it's going to mutate because that's what viruses do. And you don't want it to mutate or change in such a way for it to become more lethal and make you sicker and kill you. 
On Thursday, the Centers for Disease Control confirmed the first person-to-person transmission of the coronavirus in the U.S. And that has led to this question. Just how prepared is the government to deal with a domestic outbreak? Coronavirus is now a big challenge for the Trump administration. And it's also the first test for the administration since they disbanded a White House National Security Council team whose main responsibility was this sort of thing, to prepare for pandemics and to have a biodefense strategy. My name is Yasmina Boutalib, and I'm a health policy reporter with The Post. The concern among experts who have been part of these responses in the past or are involved in them to one degree or another is that there still isn't that person inside the White House with the authority to coordinate and plan among agencies who's in charge of the response. I think a lot of people are waiting to see and hoping that the White House will appoint someone who's going to be pretty much entirely focused on this because they expect the outbreak to last for a couple of months at least. So in the case of an outbreak in the United States. Who or what traditionally coordinates the response to that outbreak? It's something that's differed from one administration to another. Sometimes you can have a czar appointed during the duration of an outbreak, like the Obama administration did for Ebola. And after the Ebola outbreak, the Obama administration set up a structure within the White House for someone whose main responsibilities would be preparing for this sort of event. So the National Security Council did have that kind of team, but it was disbanded by the former National Security Advisor, John Bolton, a little less than two years ago. So right now, there is no one in the White House whose main or sole responsibility is preparing for this sort of global pandemic. So under the Obama administration, there was a sense that there needed to be a permanent team to be able to respond to pandemics. But then that changed during the Trump administration. Why did they think that having a team of people in place ready to jump in when something like an outbreak happens, why did they think that wasn't necessary? During the Obama administration, they initially fumbled the response to the Ebola outbreak, and they were criticized quite heavily by Republicans and by some Democrats for not being adequately prepared and being too slow to respond to the outbreak. And they eventually did appoint a czar whose sole job was to oversee this response. In the Trump administration, when Bolton came in, he wanted to streamline the National Security Council. And global health security and biodefense doesn't seem all that important and urgent until you have something like this happen. But as long as there is a period of time where there is no global outbreak, it sort of seems like a non-essential function. But When Bolton did disband this team uh, back in 2018, a lot of global health security experts criticized the decision and said the U.S. is less prepared for when one of these outbreaks inevitably happens again. But my question is, why is something like that important? Like, in this scenario, why can't just the head of the Centers for Disease Control or the head of the Department of Health and Human Services, like, why can't they just be the person in charge of coordinating the response to the coronavirus? Well, right now, the head of the Health and Human Services Department is in charge of coordinating the response. But what 
a lot of experts I've spoken to have said is that's not adequate for a response to something like this that requires high-level diplomacy. There are so many challenges with responding to this sort of outbreak. It's not just the public health aspect of it. One, this is a virus that we don't really understand a lot about. It's not been seen before in humans. So researchers and scientists are still trying to understand how the virus works. There's no drug or vaccine for it right now. That's a big challenge. But there's also diplomatic efforts that are beyond the purview of a health official. So up until now, global experts have not been able to get into China at the epicenter of the outbreak to see what's going on, to be able to better study the virus, to really be there ground zero and see what's happening. They're relying entirely on the Chinese government for reports of the number of cases, the number of deaths. And a lot of people have expressed concern that the Chinese have not been transparent up until now. And the other thing is there are more complicated diplomatic questions like how many of the Americans do we evacuate out of China, you know, chartering flights for them, uh, government employees, who are in China who may be at risk, um, restricting travel, doing airport screening. These are things that involve the State Department, the Department of Homeland Security, several agencies. And the argument that experts have made is you need one person in the White House who has the power to convene all those agencies and to also tell them what they need to do. So this is the first major outbreak that the Trump administration is facing from a, from a public health perspective. What are the the risks here politically for President Trump? Well, it's obviously an election year, so fumbling the response to this sort of outbreak can carry a lot of political risks for him, that the administration doesn't look prepared. There is a lot of fear and misinformation about the virus out there. And if the administration looks like it's not prepared, especially as the outbreak continues to grow, that could hurt them politically. And I think it's worth pointing out that President Trump himself has a history of putting out bad information about the spread of diseases, specifically his tweets about Ebola, I think could be considered a form of, of fear mongering back when that was a huge and imminent threat. That's right. Trump was the fear monger in chief during the Ebola outbreak. He tweeted that the CDC was not being forthcoming about just how infectious uh, Ebola was, even though it wasn't transmitted as easily as, say, this coronavirus is. Um, he called for all the borders to be shut down and for visas to not be issued to people from Ebola-stricken countries. Uh, Specifically, he said, stop the flights. Stop the flights. That's right. And all caps was one of his tweets. He's been fairly restrained um, in, in his tweets about the coronavirus so far. He's praised China for its response a bit too much for some of his senior advisors. Why, why would that be? Why would he want to refrain from being too tough on China in this situation? This gets to some of the diplomatic complexities that we were talking about earlier. President Trump is in the middle of trade negotiations with China. And what some senior administration officials have told us is um, Trump is afraid. He feels it would not be productive to be too critical on China in the midst of this outbreak while trade negotiations are going on. And he sent a tweet last week praising China and, and President Xi. And, and some people thought that tweet was not warranted, that it was a bit too positive for their liking. So what do you think all of that says about the president's and the the White House's ability to handle this threat of coronavirus becoming a bigger problem here? 
Right now, it seems like the individual agencies are doing their work and the virus has been pretty contained in the U.S. What officials are telling us is President Trump is fairly consumed by impeachment right now, but there is a recognition that it's going to pass. It will likely end in his acquittal. And then this will be front and center and they want to look as if they're prepared. But what experts keep telling us and emphasizing is that they really need to have someone in the White House running this. And right now, it's not clear who's in charge of coordinating among the agencies. So that's a critical step that I think a lot of people are waiting for. Yasmin, thank you so much. Thank you. Yasmin Abutalib covers health policy for The Post. Lena Sun covers public health and infectious diseases. So, Amber Phillips, it's 5.30 p.m. on Thursday, and we are reaching the end of the second and final day of questioning in the Senate impeachment trial. And at least to me, it felt like we saw a lot of the same types of questions that we saw yesterday. But one notable thing was that there was this moment of levity with Adam Schiff. He kind of made a joke. I'll respond to the question, but uh, let me begin with something in the category of You can't make this stuff up. Yeah, it was levity. And I would also, if you're a Democrat, you might say dark humor. So in court, the Trump administration in all these lawsuits is arguing court is the wrong way to solve this stuff. You're the judicial branch. Stay out of this. Let the legislative and executive branch deal with this. So Adam Schiff astutely noted that today in one of those cases, a federal judge said, "Okay, if Congress can't enforce its subpoena in court... What remedy is there? And the Justice Department lawyer's response is, impeachment. Impeachment. You can't make this up. So you have this like circular logic of some set of the president's lawyers basically saying, you're doing this the wrong way. You shouldn't be trying to to get this information through impeachment. You should be using the subpoena process. And then other lawyers for the president are saying, you shouldn't be trying to subpoena the president. You should go through the impeachment process. That's right. And that elicited a laugh from one side of the aisle in the Senate. We can guess which side that was. So what did we see from the questions today? So we saw both sides, no surprise here, dig into their partisan corners. Republicans in particular tried to focus on this kind of side story circulating in conservative circles about the impeachment inquiry, the whistleblower, and the allegation that Adam Schiff, the lead House manager, had a heads up that this was coming. The question from Senator Johnson and the other senators for both parties. Recent reporting described two NSC staff holdovers from the Obama administration attending an all-hands meeting of NSC staff held about two weeks into the Trump administration and talking loudly enough to be overheard, saying we need to do everything we can to take out the president. Our fact checker at the Washington Post has said that's true, but Republicans are trying to take this a step further with these very public controversial questions on the Senate floor by alleging that 
Adam Schiff's staff was working in concert with the whistleblower. So these are questions that are framed not around determining whether or not President Trump is guilty of these charges that are brought against him, but really trying to undermine the central premise of why he was impeached in the first place. That this isn't about evidence that was brought forward by a concerned whistleblower, that this was all part of this carefully coordinated plan to take down the president. That is such a smart point, Martine. What I saw Republicans do is dodge the main conversation, which is the evidence of whether Trump did what he's accused of, abusing his power and obstructing Congress, to try to undermine the investigation that uncovered that evidence. And we saw this come up during one interesting moment where Chief Justice John Roberts, who is basically in charge of reading the questions that are brought forth by the senators since they're technically not allowed to talk, that he like looked down at a question and read it to himself and then was like, I decline to read this question out loud. The presiding officer declines to read the question as submitted. This is a question that came from Senator Rand Paul of Kentucky, who tried the same thing on Wednesday, the first day of questions, and Roberts very quietly set it aside. The question, Rand Paul has said, has the name of someone that conservative media circles have alleged is a whistleblower, and that's Roberts's red line. That's where he is. We've seen him really enact his role as overseer of the Senate trial. If the Republican-controlled Senate wanted to overrule him and have this name read out loud, they could, but there's no indication they're doing that. I think Rand Paul got his point across by making news and having Roberts not even read the question. It got perhaps even more attention, which is, can we really trust the Democrats who are alleging what Trump did? Um, They're trying to shift the debate, and I think this is notable that it comes after, you know, a week and a half of the trial— where outside of this trial, more evidence has been coming out that Trump did do what he's accused of. The big one, of course, being Trump's former national security advisor writing in a manuscript that the New York Times and later the Washington Post reported on that said, yep, Trump linked military aid to the Biden investigation. I was there. I heard him say it. And that remains one of the big questions of how the rest of this trial will transpire. Are we or are we not going to hear from John Bolton? Will he be allowed to testify in the Senate? So what do we know so far from the questions today about whether or not that's actually going to happen? It's tough to tell because, like you said, senators can't talk. So it's tough to divine their intentions for asking questions, although some of them are blatantly partisan and they're just setting up talking points for their sides. But the senators were watching. There's about three of them, Susan Collins of Maine, Lisa Murkowski of Alaska, and Mitt Romney of Utah, have been asking really, really thoughtful questions and difficult questions to both the House Democrats. You know, why didn't you continuing to subpoena these people once you met the White House's requirements for a subpoena? Why didn't you accuse Trump of a crime? Then it would be, we wouldn't be having this debate about whether you need to have a crime. And then they also have smart questions of the White House and questions that as of today, the White House hasn't answered, particularly whether there was any evidence Trump was interested in the Biden's work in Ukraine before Biden got into the presidential race. And Mitt Romney also wanted to know... Given that the White House counsel could not answer Senator Romney's question that asked for the exact date the president first ordered the hold on security assistance to Ukraine, what witness or witnesses could answer Senator Romney's question? And why did he say he did it? 
Like, that's just a question that goes to the absolute core of this impeachment process. And the the White House defense hasn't answered it. So what are we going to see tomorrow? And when is there going to be a definitive answer on whether or not we're going to see more of this trial? After Thursday, senators are likely done asking questions. And then Friday, both sides are going to have two hours to argue why we should have witnesses. And that'll probably be It's been an undercurrent of this entire trial, so you'll probably hear a lot of repeat arguments if you've been following the trial so far. And then they'll vote. Senate works, like I said, really incrementally. So they'll vote on whether to consider witnesses, and then they're going to vote on, do we have witnesses? It only takes a majority vote. We think all Democrats are going to vote for witnesses, which means we need four Republican senators. As I said earlier, we have three who seem like they could vote yes. We don't know if there's going to be a fourth. If there's no witnesses, if they vote no witnesses, they could vote to end the trial. And by that, I mean have a vote to convict or quit the president. So in theory, if they vote against having witnesses, the trial could be over like by Saturday, that they could just vote on Saturday whether or not to convict the president and it could all be over. But if if these four Republican senators do vote with Democrats on allowing witnesses, then we could be continuing for weeks. We could be continuing for weeks. And one of our congressional colleagues, Rachel Bade, pointed out that there could also be a stalemate on who to decide to call. So in these closed-door negotiations, if they vote to approve witnesses, maybe they're at a stalemate because Democrats won't yield on having the Biden family come to the stand in exchange for Bolton. And then I've likened that to like immigration reform, where everybody agrees on the broad contours, but they can't agree on the details and nothing gets done. Like, could we just see this language forever? That there's a world in which even if there were enough people who voted for having witnesses, we might still not see any witnesses because there won't be enough people to vote for each individual witness to be allowed to testify. That's right. The point is, we have no idea how this is going to end. I mean, I'm not saying we think Trump is going to get convicted. That would take 20 defections from Senate Republicans. But there's just like any number of paths the Senate could go down on Friday into Saturday. And I guess we'll see which one it goes down. Amber, thank you so much. Thank you. Amber Phillips is a political reporter for The Fix. And now, one more thing on the surprising people donating to Trump's 2020 campaign. First-time donors who are giving big. We found at least 220 donors who have given for the first time or who sat out President Trump's first election, now giving five to six figures to support President Trump's re-election. And they have given at least $21 million for Trump's second term. I'm Michelle Yehili. I cover money and politics at The Washington Post. Some of the new donors to President Trump's re-election include a man who runs a trucking business based in California who gave $235,000 to support his re-election. A guy who runs a commercial real estate company in Dallas who gave $45,000. A man who owns four different apparel companies in California who gave $37,500. And a person who runs an investment company in a yoga studio in Florida who gave $100,000. It is very unusual for a donor to go from never giving before to 
$50,000 or $100,000. That is an incredible change in behavior as a political donor. You usually ramp up from giving a little here and there, and then you eventually become comfortable with giving these large checks. But their enthusiasm for President Trump, when they have never been involved like this before, just underscores huge enthusiasm for his presidency and a huge desire to see him reelected for four more years. What's interesting about these donors is that they don't necessarily identify with the Republican Party. Some of them have given to Barack Obama before. They kind of liked what they saw in his presidency, but not as much as they love Trump. I talked to many of these donors, and some common themes emerge. Some people love that Trump is just strong and projecting strength in his presidency and around the world. Some of these people are business owners who kind of see themselves and the best versions of themselves in Trump's story, from being a businessman to the president of the United States. I spoke with this one man who is a commercial real estate developer in Dallas. His name is Ajike Akpa. He doesn't have a political experience like everybody else. And and for me, it was interesting to see somebody who's coming from the business background who believes in America. He likes non-traditional candidates. He was interested in Barack Obama in 2008. Now he's given over $40,000 to support President Trump's re-election. I just decided that I, I need to show that I I believe in what his message is, and I believe in the Republican Party. I mean, once you talk to Ajike about President Trump, you can't get him to stop. He's very passionate about this country. He has so many photos with the president. So I met Trump Jr., I met Eric, I met the wife. With the president's family members. I met uh, the daughter. And he just loves all of it. I am for a president that will stand up for this country. America doesn't have to apologize for their existence. We know that President Trump is raising record amounts of money for his re-election. And a lot of it has come from low-dollar, small-dollar donors who are giving $5, $10 at a time because they really want to support him and defend him. But now we know that that sort of loyal enthusiasm for President Trump has reverberated to people of means, people who can write five- to six-figure checks but just haven't before because they were never inspired to. And this is a fundamental shift in the types of donors who have been enthusiastic about presidential politics and the types of people that President Trump is drawing into the Republican Party and into his re-election effort. Michelle Lee covers money and politics for The Post. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. On tomorrow's episode, a deep dive into the bizarre, confusing, chaotic process that is the Iowa caucus. It's basically just this giant game of musical chairs happening all around the state. It's literally people gathering in homes and gymnasiums and rooms to physically vote with their feet for who they want to be the next president of the United States. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. 